Welcome to season four of the Dynamic Leader podcast. My name is Shelley Flett. I believe that leadership at its core requires strong relationships, the ability to sit in a space of genuine curiosity and the courage to build capability in others. I believe great leaders are lifelong learners. And so my intention is to help you to continue your learning journey by bringing you new perspectives from experts in their field. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. Today, I want to talk a little bit about leadership as per normal. <laughs> I also want to talk about transforming contact centers. And I've asked to get my guest today um, to join me. He, uh, so it's Daniel Yetzi, who was the general manager of customer services for David Jones and Country Road Group, where he worked for over 25 years. Um, he's a leader on a mission to redefine customer service from a traditional retail operating model into a seamless omni-channel conversational commerce experience powered by great people and enabled by AI. I so love that. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today for the conversation. Oh, my pleasure, Shelley. It's great to be here. And well done on getting all of those words out in one sentence. <laughs> I am in the um, middle of recording my audiobook for my latest book, Feedback. And what I have learned is I need to slow down and finish the words and read ahead. So I feel like today was the perfect test for that. Well, you've got 10 out of 10 in my book, and that's <laughs> a good lesson that I need to remind myself about as well, actually. Slow down. Slow down. Yeah, maybe, and maybe not drink six cups of coffee before 10 in the morning. That might help as well. Actually, you know, there's something in that where depending, I don't necessarily think we think about our caffeine intake mm. before we look at our calendar. So I'd actually love to have that conversation first. Like, sure. how do you, do you get into the habit of going, what have I got on this morning? And will one, two or three coffees um, enhance my ability to, or my effectiveness, or will it diminish it? And do you make a choice on that? That's a really good question. And it's interesting. It's something that I've only recently started pondering. Um, you, you know, in all fairness, I'm Italian, so I love my coffee. Uh, and without any, you know, thinking whatsoever, as soon as I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is make a double espresso. So that's a purely automatic response. You know, I don't know whether James Clear would think that's a really great habit to have, but there you go. Um, and for me, that's a non-negotiable. It's, it's part of a morning ritual. And what I've learned in the, or come to appreciate, I guess, in the last few years is that importance of that morning routine or ritual. Um, it's kind of a bit of both, really. So for me at the moment, it's having that coffee, um, for the mo most mornings, going to the gym, getting back, starting to process my day, um, and then you know having breakfast uh, when I get home, another coffee, and then go for the day. So, but I have noticed that sometimes um, if I if I'm not mindful about the amount of coffee I'm drinking, uh, it sometimes it does affect my performance adversely, um, and you know you can feel sort of the I guess the little shakes coming on a little bit. Um, so it, it, I think it's just about getting the balance right. And it depends on the kind of activity that you're going to do. So if it's something where the stakes are high, 
probably, you know, it's important to lay back on the coffee because your adrenaline is probably going to be running ahead already. So I try to moderate it there. But to be fair, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. So it's, I'm a bit of an um, conducting some experiments at the moment. So it's kind of interesting. I'll let you know how they go. This year, I have spoken to so many different people about so many different things in the realm of leadership. We've talked about sleep, we've talked about, you know, mental health, we've talked about fitness and all that kind of thing. I I definitely think there's space for a, um, are you having too much caffeine day sort of, you know, if we can create some international, um, you know, <laughs> what's your caffeine intake? Um, yeah. Because I think it does have an impact. And I think too often we are just defaulting to, let's get as much caffeine into me as possible. But then we're, what you know, so much of what we're talking about today is slow down, be present in your conversations. Don't go back and do again. And I, and I would like to think that caffeine might be a little bit responsible for us going so fast and needing to do over. Keen to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of a chicken and egg question, isn't it? Um, and you're absolutely right when you were talking there about being present in the moment. Um, I think that's super important. We can often get caught up in all of the things that we need to do in a day that, you know, at the start of the day that we're hoping to achieve and then all the interruptions that come across our way, all of those thoughts that come flying through your, your mind uh, throughout the day. And I guess the default is to go into that automatic pilot and just do stuff and be busy. And that needs, um, I guess, fuel. So what do you go? Well, coffee is the, the the default response for many people and myself included. And you're right. It, it, sometimes it's more important to actually just take that step back. Um, and I've, I've actually started um, scheduling in my calendar in the morning and in the afternoon, uh, 30 minutes to go for a walk and um or even just to get outside um looking at my deck out that way um yeah just to get outside and get some sunlight or some fresh air and it you know i don't i'm not an expert on the the sort of physiological sides of things or the neurological sides of things but certainly that timeout does i i believe allow your mind to or give it some space to reprocess and it's quite often in those instances that you get that little aha moment for me it's when I'm in the shower in the morning and I I'm you know very bad I take a half hour shower so not very environmentally sound however for me any environment where there's water um, is one where I just find that the puzzle pieces of whatever I'm thinking of or, or whatever problems that I'm trying to solve start to uh, fall together in place and that's often where I'll have my aha moment you know, so many people write about that, you know, um, Ryan Holiday in his book, Stillness is the Key, talked about a lot of really um, successful people having some kind of stillness, even if it's not physical stillness, walking, but being able to quiet the mind or just let it do its thing. Um, Chris Bailey in his book, Hyper Focus, talks about this stage of scattered focus because he sort of says, well, hyper focus, you can't is not sustainable for long periods of time. So it's really good to get in, get focused, get things done. But then he talks about this um, concept called scattered focus and it's intentional mind wandering, which sounds a little bit like what might happen in the shower or, you know, mm. for different people it will happen at different times. But I love 
making space for that because you do get those penny drop like that. Actually, that's where that fits. Yeah, it. it I, I totally agree. And, you know, there's a trap, I think, where uh, you fall, and when I say you, I mean me, um, where you read these blogs or articles or whatever from productivity gurus and going, here's how you can cram 100 things in your day. This I achieve these 50 things before I get out of the house in the morning. And that's actually not sustainable. And that's sometimes I think that's just doing stuff for the sake of checking off a list. And um, there's a, a book and now the name escapes me. I think it's called 4,000 Weeks, um, it, where the premise of it is that we've only got, you know, about, I think it's 4,000 weeks um, in general to live. Wow. And when you break it down that way, you go, well, you, that's not a lot of time. And so one of the important things is, well, actually take that step back and pause and ask yourself, well, what is really important and what do I really want to achieve in this 4,000 weeks of my life? Is it, I don't know, you know, doing a checklist of stuff? Maybe not. Maybe it's something um, more important, whether you know, it might be it might be you know, giving something back to the community. It might be something professionally related or work-related or family-related. But, yeah, it, it, it is really important to take that step back and pause and think and allow yourself the time to just ask those questions and let that lead guide you in the in the right direction rather than just cramming things in for the sake of saying, yep, I was really busy today. I would love to know what led you to that point um and like what was your journey were you a what kind of leader were you in the beginning like how did you evolve um oh that's a really really good question I I think it all started um oh gosh when I finished my undergraduate degree at university I I did a double major in French in arts so you know not the most practical degree in the world and um, at the time, I thought I wanted a career in academia. And what I hadn't realised was how lonely that is. You know, you've got to do a lot of research on your own, stuck in a in an office on your own. Um, and this is really before the internet was a big thing, right? So a lot of books and things, and I'm showing my age. And um, while I was studying, uh, that's when I moved from Brisbane to Sydney, and, and I got a part-time job at... Um, what was then Grace Brothers Department Store, which is now part of Maya. And um, that's where I caught the retail bug. And I think it was being in a very social environment, working with other people, obviously working with customers and so on. And I started thinking, oh, actually, this could be an interesting career. And I'd watch the, the managers in the business and thought, I think I want to do what they do. And I didn't, didn't really know why, but just seemed interesting and um I then uh sort of dropped out of my master's and um you know not great but there you go sometimes you've got to make these decisions and um, you've only got four thousand weeks exactly (laughs) and um because I was enjoying retail and and, you know started working full-time and then um uh, ended up working at David Jones in my first management role working as a homewares sales manager and I think I had a team of about maybe 40 50 people and so that was my first 
um, I guess, real experience of leading others. And um, I I guess I just took the approach of, well, I know, I know I've had good managers. I've had what I thought were poor managers. So I'll just put all those little things into a toolkit and pick out the things that um, you know, I think work for me. And ultimately, you know, you, you gotta, you've got to respect your team and, and learn from them. I was managing people that had worked in, you know, retail for 20, 30 years. They knew more about it than I did. So I think there's a bit of humility um, that you need to bring to the table. Can um, I just ask on the humility part? Because, like, how does that, do you feel like you had that, already available to you like because humility kind of hear people talking about and those that are really humble comes across as it's so easy but there's this other egoic side yeah it's um that's a really good question I think um part of I think I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword right ultimately I'm a very I'm an introvert which is kind of doesn't make sense if, I'm, if I wanted to manage people and stuff like that and work in retail, right? Um, and to this day, if you if I go into a, a say a conference and there's a hundred people in there, I just go, oh my god, this is death. You know, who, how do I strike up a conversation? So I'm still a work in progress. Many years later, um, so I think part of that humility comes out of being an introvert. You don't want to kind of blow your trumpet. And that's not necessarily always a good thing, right? So it, all of these, like many things in life, you've got to get the, the, the a little bit of it is a good thing. Too much or too little is, is not right. Um, and I guess the other, on the other hand, um, you know, you can't bring too much ego to the table. These people I were managing, they had, you know, they knew their stuff. They could run rings around me if they wanted to. So that was sort of i guess the other component or the other aspect of it that i knew okay i need to i can learn from them um and i can help them do their job but ultimately so it's kind of this mutually beneficial relationship so i think that's sort of how how it happened a little bit of upbringing and and a little bit of kind of learning on the job um and so yeah i kept eventually i became a store manager and i just loved it and you know i had teams of up to i think a thousand people at one stage and which was really great um and ultimately I think one of the things that I love um about leadership is um again for me being an introvert I have to change gears and um I maybe it's because it gets me out of that comfort zone that I enjoy it um and so I just love um trying to get you know nothing makes me happier than trying to get the best out of people and helping them realize their potential and because you know obviously that makes you look better as a manager and a leader as well um so yeah I think I think it's been sort of a bit of that background of being a very shy person has forced me to kind of find these ways to get around that to be able to get the job done. That's amazing. It's so interesting to hear that you dropped your master's to in favour for, for more of that. Job in retail. <laughs> um, 
like I get it. I'm not an introvert. So I'm like, totally, I could never, I would never want to spend any of my 4,000 weeks doing a master's um, locked away somewhere. Um, so I get it. It's really interesting to hear that you as, you know, that self-proclaimed introvert can can actually not only push yourself and move into that space, but thrive over 20 years in leadership and getting to, you know, that general manager of customer services, that that's huge. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, it's not, it hasn't been all smooth sailing. On the other hand, I'm also quite the perfection perfectionist um and you know and and I suffer from imposter syndrome sometimes you know like many many of us do and and I know the transition um after I was a store manager for a number of years and and had you know I just loved doing that you know hit all the sweet spots but um generally I found in my working life that after about three two to three years in a row I start getting a little bit Board. I'm in my comfort zone and I need a bit more of a challenge. And um, so I took the leap into um, head office role. And it was interesting because I went from managing um, a store, I think yeah, it was um, probably had about 300 employees at the time, um, and to working um, in a project management role with initially without a team. I know, right? Sitting at a desk. Like boring. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I'm not to all project managers out there, but just when you come from a, a full-on environment into that, it's like crickets. Yeah. I mean, project managers are important. I'm I'm, you know, <laughs> I'll put my hand up. You know, I was asked once, oh, yeah, do you want to be a program manager? No, thanks. I'm, you know, <laughs> um, and you know, look, I learned a lot of skills and talk about getting out of my comfort zone, but I was miserable for you know, I think the 18 months that I was in that role. Yeah, was I doing some great work? Absolutely. Um, you know, I uh, worked um, on a project which was about creating a, a culture of safety in David Jones. They 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 didn't really have one. They, um, in terms of their measures of things like um, uh, injuries that occurred in the workplace and so on, it was like really embarrassing. So um, I worked with uh, the uh, OHS manager to build this new structure, a new team, to build a whole suite of policies and procedures and injury management system and you know, all of this stuff, so, which I knew nothing about. So, a really great learning experience. And, and, you know, we really, you know, that's, I guess, one of the, you know, one of our, my old CEO, Paul Zara, said, you've got to think about what legacy do you want to leave? So, you know, that's part of the, the legacy I left this creating this safer environment for employees so the work was very um important but did i enjoy it no i was miserable i was actively looking for work you know um in other you know i was knocking on the door with Maya and you know talking to them um could you articulate that at the time could you could you because at a conscious level when you mm -hmm. present yourself with all of the facts I'm working in projects. I'm doing something that is desperately needed. I'm going to leave a legacy. Did you were you in a little bit of debate with yourself around the yeah, but there's, but I don't like it. I, I wasn't even a debate. It was just like I knew there was there was no contest. This was not making me happy. And what did and I knew. I think I knew what I missed about it. And it was that vibrancy of working in a store environment. You know, you, you, you've you got 
no two days are the same. You've got people issues to deal with. You've got customers that no two customers alike. You've got the cycle of setting up Christmas, setting up sales, setting up Easter. You've got new product that comes in. You kind of go, well, that's exciting. And um, so, you know, there's always something going on. Whereas being a, well, my experience in that project manager role was, it was, okay, now today I've got to do this. And it was all planned out. There was no spontaneity or not as much spontaneity in it. Uh, and, and I just missed having a team, you know, that I could lead more, you know, I was influencing a lot of people and I did enjoy that, but I knew that, and I don't want to, blow, well, you know, talk about humility, but I'm going to blow my own trumpet. I knew I was a good people manager, right? Um, and I wasn't able to do that for the most part in this role. And then um, fortunately, uh well, for me, um, there was a big restructure. And um, one of the roles that I thought, oh, I'd love to do this was the what they called at the time the customer relations manager. And I went, I'd love to do that one day. And they offered it to me. I went, and then I was in heaven. I had a team of people, which I actually got to build from the ground up again, um, and dealing with customers and um, you know, work on really great projects. So, again, there was all this... Um, excitement. It was the best of both worlds. It was that best of that store environment, dealing with customers, having a team to lead, but then also um, having the challenge of working in a corporate head office environment and um, having to influence stakeholders and so on. So it was one of the, you know, happiest times of, in my career. So, you know, sometimes you've just got to wait and, you know, and things will fall into place. Um, and, you know, I, was, I wasn't backwards and coming forward saying, I don't like this project management role. It's, you know, I'm unhappy. So that <laughs> that helped did, as well. Did you ever feel that there was a bit of a risk in saying that? <sighs> yes, but I think, you know, on balance I was, I just knew I couldn't do keep doing what I was doing. So um, for me, it was just, it was a bit of a no-brainer. And the fact that I had actually, I mean, I loved um, David Jones. And so the fact that I was, I went and talked to Maya and I, even though I had worked with them in, in the past, but it's just not the same, um, I think showed, you know, how desperate <laughs> I, I was. So, um, yeah, I was fortunate that, uh, you know, I was listened to and heard and um, given that opportunity. And, of course, you know, when you're given an opportunity like that, I I just went, right, I'm going to make this work and and make sure I'm doing the best job I can possibly do. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you shouldn't, uh, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to ask for, for what you want or at least have that dialogue um, because ultimately, you know, you that you know, there's a war for talent at the moment, and why would you want to lose people if you, you know, if you can't help them build a fulfilling career? And I think that's one of the other reasons I started David Jones for so long. I had these opportunities every couple of years. You know, when I started getting itchy feet, I was given a new role or more responsibility, and at one stage, I even ended up creating my own role, and um, which was a little bit of kind of promotion by subterfuge, but you know, it was sort of like, well. I saw these opportunities to take on extra work. I thought I'll do it and, um, you know, get the title and the the remuneration later when I've proven myself. So, um, and I probably wouldn't have had the the guts to do that 10 years earlier. So I think, you know, a little bit of, if it comes with age and experience as well. 
And so you went then into the contact center environment, which is say similar to retail, but so different in. Oh yeah. Well, there were, I did have quite a few things in between, but we'll skip that five, 10 years, but yeah, about five, four or five years ago. um, So David Jones had been bought by uh, Woolworths in South Africa, not related to Woolworths in Australia. And, and we were the same company as country road group. And, uh, that started sort of bringing a lot of the functions together. And um, so they brought customer together in one um, regional shared services group. And that included the contact centres. And so I was tapped on the shoulder and you know, my, my manager at the time said to me, Daniel, we want you to be general manager of customer service for David Jones and Country Road Group. And I said, oh, okay, well, what does that mean? Looking after the contact centre, I went, no, you know what? I've been there. I've done that. I set up the first, the contact centre for David Jones 10 years earlier. I didn't need to do it again. I said, I don't want to answer any more customer complaints. You know, done that, been there, done that. Anyway, that conversation went back and forth a few times and then I kind of, you know, was given a bit of an ultimatum. I went, all right, I'll do it. And... Um, Little did I know, I mean, you know, I was very naive. Um, a lot had changed <laughs> in um, the time in the time that I'd last been in uh, customer service. And, um, and part of that was just the growth of online. And so the role of the contact centre was becoming, you know, the, the contact centres were much bigger. But also um, technology had changed. And we were still, particularly on the David Jones side, Still, you know, nothing had changed in the 10 years that I'd been there. They were still using the same computers and pretty much the same systems um, that we had introduced. But we had to relocate that contact centre from Sydney to Melbourne. And um, originally the the company made a decision to outsource it, but, you know, we realised that was not the right move. And so we worked to introduce technology to actually help us um, at the time run the cost centre, the contact centre more cost effectively. Um, But it actually transformed how, uh, you know, really brought David Jones and Country Road Group's customer service into the digital era. Now, I had no idea what I was doing at the time, you know, fair fair comment there. And it was really interesting that, um, you know, that actually, the work that we did, which we finished just before COVID, meant we could actually get through COVID without having, with, with keeping all of our channels of communication open and actually lay the groundwork for all of this, these continued iterations and advances in how we served customers. So, you know, again, talking about the legacy, I, I'm p- pleased to say that that those contact centres went from this reactive service model where, you know, the, the most the most common reason people rang us for was to say, where's my order? And then it actually they turned into these revenue generating centres where we were actually helping customers purchase product, help, helping them answer their questions. And we were a digital first contact center. So over three quarters of the conversations we were having with customers, and it's not complaints anymore, it's now conversations, which changes the dynamic. Um, over, three, over three quarters of the conversations we were having with customers took place over digital channels. So I didn't realize at the time I was doing all of this. It's kind of like, you know, talking about in the shower, go, I wonder if, you know, when a customer rings us and it's really busy, that rather than them waiting on the phone or getting a call back, maybe we could convert their inquiry into a text message and then the contact centre could text the customer back. Now, I didn't know if that could be done. Turned 
But that was what I was thinking in the shower one morning. And then I rang a talk to our vendors in IT and I go, oh, yeah, we could do it this way, this way, and this way. And, and we built the solution. And it was like, how cool is that? So, um, yeah, it was it was a really great experience and a huge learning curve uh, for me and for the business as well. And amazing divine timing in terms of where we were at with the pandemic, et cetera. <laughs> oh, look, yeah, Shelley, I, I remember when I was pulling the business case together and, and you know, we needed um, to buy new hardware. We needed to hire 75 new people for the David Jones side. And, you know, and I remember talking to IT saying, right, I need you to tell me how much 75 new laptops would cost. And they would say, well, why do you need laptops? I said, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe somebody might break their leg and they can't come into the office one day. And with this new solution that we're going to build, they could work from home. And people would say, but why would you want to work from home? I'm like, well, I don't know, but look, you know, and I don't know what, you know, what gods were shining on me, but the fact that um, I was articulating that and I didn't know why at the time, um, I just knew that this was sort of like what was possible um, actually saved our skin. And it was, again, by luck, we had decided one day, let's test the work from home solution. Um, we'll, we'll send, you know, about a dozen team members home with their laptops and see if the solution works from home. We hadn't actually done that. And then that night we got the phone call, there's a COVID case in the office. And this was before the lockdowns actually happened. So we went into lockdown about two weeks before the rest of the community. So, you know, again, a lot of luck, um, but also the work that we'd done really helped us keep the customer service function alive throughout those particular initial first few months of um, the pandemic. Absolutely. Gosh. Um, and, <laughs> you know, you see the, you see those that weren't prepared for it and how long that took. And it didn't, even for those that weren't, that this wasn't already on the radar, um, they managed to be able to pivot and you know, move things around, but I'm sure their coffee intake um, and stress levels are probably a lot more <laughs> expensive. I had no grey hair before I did that role. Now, you know, <laughs> so, and, and a lot less of it as well. So I don't know what that says. I love, um, I love on your, like in your bio, you know, my favourite line is um, about having this seamless omni-channel conversational commerce experience, but powered by great people and enabled by AI. I just, did you steal that from someone? Did you, like, I just love that. I, I don't think I stole it. I'm <laughs> going to take credit for it. I apologize if I did steal, but I'm pretty sure I didn't. So good. It, it, thank you. I think, it, look, I'm, it's interesting. I, if you could have asked me when I started in that role, uh, tell me about machine learning, tell me about AI, tell me about you know, APIs, I go, what are you talking about? And I remember um, not long after I had started in the role, and this is before we'd even got the business case finished, I attended a contact centre conference and talk about imposter syndrome, Shelley. I went in there and it was a like a two-day thing in regional Victoria, no escape. And um, I walked into the room and there were people going, yes, I've been um, a contact centre manager for 22 years. Oh, I've, I've been here for 15 years. I've been in... I said, well, what about you? I said, oh, um, it's been like two weeks. And they were, I listened to them present and I was in awe thinking, okay, well, first of all, I want to be on that stage one day and, you know, but secondly, the other thing, Shelley, was 
I had no idea what they were talking about half the time, you know, like asynchronous messaging. What is that? And so it was a very humbling experience. But, um, you know, I, I kind of learned very quickly and I was for one of the other things I think about being a good leader, is you've got to be curious and you've got to ask the questions and, you know, quite often and acknowledge that you don't necessarily know them all. Um, you've, you, I think our role as leaders is to help find the right answer. And more often than not, it's with our frontline people um, or with some other stakeholder or with our customers, you know. Um, and, and I think that's what I learned in this role was, again, to keep asking the questions, not be worried if they were stupid ones. Um, and to learn on the way. And, you know, I've just, I'm at the moment, I'm in the, the, the tail end of doing a digital transformation course through Stanford University. And um, again, I thought, oh, yeah, I think I'll nail this. I already know about AI well, you know. I, talk about not knowing what you don't know. So um, it's been a really, really interesting learning experience for the last few years. And do you see, because I remember back in... Oh gosh, it was probably 2010 mm-hmm. when I exited the contact center space, thinking to myself, one day machines are going to do all of this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts now around do you, <clears throat> and again, coming back to that line around powered by people and enabled by AI, do you think that's always going to be the case, or at least for the next foreseeable future? I think, um, I think it will always be the case. So I think certainly the role of a contact centre agent or a sales assistant or whatever will change and or, or any other kind of white-collar or knowledge worker or whatever you want to call them. It has to change, right? You know, the, the technology's there. It's getting smarter. This feels like the dot-com boom on steroids. Um, so we need to learn with it. At the moment, um, it... it you know, the best practice is, well, you use AI to do that basic humdrum work um, and you bring people in to add value. But we're already starting to see that AI, particularly with generative AI, is starting to be able to add value. So that's really cool. So I, it's, it's a question where I think we're still, we're still going to see where it goes. On the one hand, um, I do believe that customers, they're getting more and more exposed to AI and they're used to it and they're comfortable with it now. And I remember when we launched, did our launched our new contact center, when you rang up, um, we had um a bot would answer the phone and go, Hello, Shelley, welcome to David Jones. And customers will go, How did it know my name? And so we because we, we was the system was doing API calls to Salesforce and all sorts of really cool things. And and so the when the when the phone was answered, customers wouldn't say anything. They were just, we had crickets. So then eventually the call would come to to one of our agents and, you know, they go, this is all freaky. I don't understand. You know, wh- how do you know this? And what am I supposed to say? And so what we learned from that was, well, hey, you've got to bring customers on the journey when you're going through some technological change, although that's becoming a lot easier now, I, I think. Um, but then, uh, you know, also it's, there's still always a role for people because AI can't do everything yet. So you get it to do the boring stuff like what's your name, what's your address, what's your order number, why are you calling, blah, 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 and then 
get the juicy stuff over to your people. And so I think from from a leader's perspective, that's going to change, um, I guess, the the what the role of a, a contact centre agent looks like, potentially changes the, the kind of people that we need to attract into contact centres. And it's a real challenge in Australia because, A, there's, you know, there's war for talent, which still hasn't appeared to have subsided, but, B, you know, contact centres um, are just so poorly regarded, uh, you know, as a career as um, opportunity. And I get it. You know, quite often people are underpaid, the work's pretty challenging um, and the hours are not great and, you know, all of that sort of thing. But as the contact centre changes, I think there's an opportunity for us to really look at how we can make these roles more interesting. And, 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 you know, that was the experience we were finding at DJs and at Country Row Group that the team member, you know, AI was answering all the where's my order questions or at least, you know, about 60% of them. So that's great. And then the team members were actually getting on to live chat and helping customers you know, with things like we had one customer say, I'm a 50-year-old woman, what's the best eye cream for me? And we went, oh, okay, well, we think it's this one. And it, it, that started unlocking all this opportunity so that the contact centre agents became, were starting to transport, transform into sales people. And that really starts begging the question, well, what does the contact centre look like? Do we manage it like a store? Do we give the, the team incentives? All of those sorts of things. So... Very long way of answering a question. I think we're still in this position of flux. I think there'll always be a, a place for great people. AI will continue to play more and more role, but then we've got to figure out where do the people come in the mix and, and how do they, where do they add value? And it's probably in doing more, more interesting, kind of more value-added work and adding more personalization to the customer experience. And I guess that's my experience with this course that I did. It was online and digital, and that's very convenient. Anyone from the world can log on and, you can listen to the lectures whenever you want, but the 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 kind of um, uh, seminars, the the tutorials were conducted on Zoom, and that's just a terrible experience. It's not very um, dynamic, and you can't have a conversation, and you've got that lag um, in calls happening. So, the ideal mix there would be some in person discussions and then online content. So I think the balance of digital and, and analog, get that right, and you're on a winning combination. I totally agree. I also think that we've got two problems that could provide the one solution. I'd love to throw this at you. This mm. is just, you know, I've been thinking about this a little bit lately because I have a 15-year-old who's just about to transition into year 11. Okay. Um, and so, you know, the education system, I think, needs a massive overhaul. I don't think that um, kids coming out the other end actually have <laughs> life skills to, hey, pick the phone up and have a conversation with someone or actually just speak and engage. And so I think you've got this challenge with school leavers, but on the other side, you've got this challenge with talent and and at what point do contact centres become educational environments to you know, that you get people who are still at school who have the support of an education or a, a learning framework, but that they can be in service to real people and solve the two problems. Mm. It's uh, it's interesting, right? Because I when, when I recruit for people, for team members, whether it was in the contact centre or any of the previous 
teams I was managing, I didn't, yes, you look for skill and you look for the ability to do the role, but actually what was more important was somebody's willingness, you know, to to be able to do the job. And willingness is probably not the right word, but, you know, their enthusiasm for it and, and culture fit and those sorts of things. Because you can teach somebody how to, the mechanics of a job. And one of the interesting, um, uh, I guess, observations that I had managing the two contact centres for David Jones and Country Road Group. David Jones was interesting. We we had to build a contact centre from scratch. It was a very diverse group of people. We had some uni students. We had retiree or almost retirees or some people coming back into the workforce, every kind of um, background, multi, you know, multi, very multicultural group of people, um, some people who were technically or technologically very savvy, um, and some who really struggled <laughs> with um, some of the technology that we had, at least initially. Uh, whereas on the country road group side, it was a lot more generally skewed a bit younger, a bit more um, uh, uh, monocultural. I don't know if that's a word, but, you know, there was this diversity there in terms of age and experience and stuff. And I really do feel that, when you have that diversity, um, and I'm not saying that it sounds like I'm talking buzzwords at the moment, but I, I really do mean this, it actually just elevates that whole team because every person has got you know, some complementary skills that they can bring to the table and then they'll have some um, opportunities to learn that somebody else can, can help them with. When everybody's the same, you don't get that kind of synergy. Um, and also... You know, sometimes it's good to have somebody with a bit more life experience, right? They, you know, they don't get, they're less likely to be frazzled by a customer who's, who may be really upset with them, or, you know, they might be, you know, they might understand that coming into work on time is really important, and, and whereas somebody, you know, stereotypes here, you know, maybe somebody who's younger or just out of school may not necessarily get that, you know. Yeah. Sorry, that that's a very bad generalization. So, but yeah, I think you, you if you can really take the effort to have that mix, mm. that will actually help your team lift its overall performance. And I and I think also just in general harmony as well. Yeah, absolutely. I still um I still believe that being, you know, I worked a little bit in hospitality and I worked a little bit in contact centers. And I think about my ability to communicate and create really deep and <clears throat> meaningful relationships um, stemmed from just having to have conversations a lot when I was younger, didn't yeah. particularly like it, didn't particularly want to be doing it. Um, but I'm so grateful. So I always sort of look at, and even with my 15 year old, I'm like, get a job in a contact center or get a job in retail, whatever it's fine as long as you are speaking to people because I think we're we're losing the art. It, it, do you know what we are? And and I feel a little bit culpable here. Um, you know, with with the contact center, we you know, one of the things that I did was introduce all of these digital channels, introduced live chat, introduced um messaging and and um what we were finding was that particularly with live chat you launch it and then overnight the phone calls would drop by about 
and they continue to decline because, you know, let's face it, if you want to ring up a company to, if you've got a problem or you've got a question, who wants to actually make the call, wait on hold, to have to explain yourself? Um, and sometimes you have to explain yourself multiple times to multiple people because they don't have the, the single view of customer. Nobody wants to do that. If I can go online and just maybe send a text message and go, hey, you know, I need to, can you tell me what I need to do here? Or maybe get into a live chat, um, you know, while I'm watching TV or something. Mm. Well, that's easier. So, and there's some research out there that shows that Australians, uh, I think it's something like 75% of Australians um, would prefer to text somebody than to actually talk to them over the phone. You know, so, and if you think about it, when your phone rings and you don't recognise that number, I don't answer it anymore. Just go, oh, that could be a scammer. So uh, it's interesting. Technology is really shifting us away from this person-to-person communication. And that that's opens up a lot of opportunities, but there is a loss there as a society that we, we need to really start thinking, well, how are we going to address that? And you're right, because there's a whole series of skills that comes with having conversations with people and even just, you know, empathy, things like that. You can't really be empathetic with somebody over a text message. Maybe you can, but it's emojis. Yeah. <laughs> Sad face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting, interesting time we're coming in. And I don't know whether to be excited by it. Well, sometimes I you know feel a bit sad by it as well. So yeah, but mm. I guess we just have to adapt. Um, and I mean, I could keep talking to you all day because I think we can explore any topic. But I'm gonna I'm gonna end with asking you one more question. So I've heard humility come up. I've heard um, curiosity come up. What what other like if there was one other thing that you would give recommendations to leaders around holding to be their best? themselves and their people what would you what what would you recommend Mm, that's a really good question ultimately they I often tell this to my team members when they're having a bit of a tough time when you go on a plane and they say right in the unlikely event of an emergency the, the oxygen will come down and fit your own mask first so you can help others and I think that's a really important kind of takeaway that you can't help others unless you help yourself first. So you do have to be a little bit selfish, but it's it's for a, a good cause. And so whether that's as simple as making sure you're not drinking too much coffee because you're not so you don't snap at somebody later in the day because you're hyperactive, or getting enough sleep, or meditating, or learning or whatever the case may be getting some coaching or getting some help so you know it might be you know you might might need to see a counselor or psychologist because you know you've got some issues that you need to deal with but you can't until you start addressing those for yourself you're just going to spread yourself too thin and and i i you know i think i've been in that situation a few times where my um personality type is i want to help others um and then sometimes i did that at the expense of my own well-being and um again you know with the the benefit of a few years i've realized actually that isn't good for me and it's not good for anyone around me so 
that would be my my recommendation. Look after yourself first. I love that. It's beautiful. I've been going on about that for the best part of the year. So <laughs> it's very supportive. It's so important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Daniel, thank you so much for um being open to the spontaneous message on LinkedIn to go, would you like to be on my podcast? <laughs> Saying yes. It's sure. amazing. I really appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. And um, yeah, we should continue this conversation over a coffee sometime. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you again. Um, thank you everyone for listening. I look forward to another dynamic leader conversation with you all soon. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the dynamic leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.